Josh had just commented about some of the challenges around the country right now with uh, the situation in South Carolina um, and situations here within our community as well that are creating and, and causing some pain. And I work for a company that we have a Christian networking group and prayer requests are shared through that Christian networking group. Just over the course of the last couple of weeks, a couple of situations that have come up there too. There were prayer requests about uh, whenever the floods ravaged the southern part of Texas just a few weeks ago. One of our field representatives, uh, she and her family have a vacation home on the river that flooded and their home got washed away and they were in it. Um, a situation that I don't know how much you've read, but the water rose about 30 feet in an hour and a half. And it was at night, it was dark, and those that were there in that area really had no chance. Um, I got a prayer request last week that um, asked prayer for a family that had three children, the youngest of which was three years old, and the wife was pregnant uh, right now. The situation occurred in the driveway of all places, and the youngest child was killed. Um, and we look at those things, and we we're pained by those things, and they cause grief, and they cause problems, and they cause hurt. And, you know, within that, I'm reminded, and I hope that we are reminded as well. Before we get into our text for this morning, I want to just take a real quick detour to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. This is where Jesus removed himself for the crowd, and he and the disciples got into the boat. He said, let's go to the other side of the sea. And verses 23 to 27 State, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. You know, normally we keep going there, but I want to stop. Even in the midst of the turmoil, Jesus was calm. And it goes on, and it says, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, for we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know, at that point, I don't know if the disciples truly understood and knew who Jesus was. And so they're in a circumstance, they're in, a, they're in the midst of turmoil and waves and being buffeted, and they go and, you're asleep, help us, basically. And he comes up, and this is Mike's editorializing, but I see Jesus just raise his hand and say, peace, be still. And there are probably many of us here this morning that whether it's circumstances of this past week or circumstances that uh, are a little bit longer lived that need that reminder, peace, be still. We have the benefit, one of the benefits of knowing who Jesus is and the power that he holds, that the disciples were learning. And we have the opportunity to be able to grab into that power. So our text this morning is going to come from Joshua 6, 6 to 21. But before we do that, I'd like to bow our heads in a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your blessings to us. God, we thank you that you say, peace, be still, and we can rest in that calmness. And Father, we invite you to be with us and to be present this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. God, that your truth would illuminate our hearts. And God, that we might be able to experience victory in our lives. In your name, amen. So Josh had mentioned that this was something that God had kind of placed on my heart. Um, toward the end of the message, I'm going to share a couple of things that have 
taken place in our family, both individually for me and, and uh, for Christine as well, and then corporately how that has played a role in victory that God has uh, allowed us to experience. But as we get to that, um, I want to look at our text here in Joshua chapter 6, verses 6 to 21. So let's read that. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men were ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets were sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. This they did for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on the day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she had the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with it, destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So Jericho is a pretty impressive city. Surrounded by two walls. And when you look at the walls, they're actually a pretty massive, they're pretty massively built structures. So when you look at the dimensions of this, you have the wall in front and the wall in back. The front wall had a retaining wall of about 12 to 15 feet high. And then on top of that was the actual wall itself, which is another 20 to 26 feet high. Behind that, you had a, about a 15-foot section here, and that was often the guarded section. Uh, it looks grassy there somewhere, you, someplace you would play in the sun or, you know, in this particular diagram. I'm not sure that that was the case. But then you had another 20 to 26 foot high wall behind it. So this front wall, whenever you look at the retaining wall and the, uh, the wall on top of it, about the height of what we have here in this building. It's pretty impressive. You know, I'm not real tall, but you look at this and you look up and it's a pretty impressive structure. So those that lived behind these walls probably felt pretty good. They probably felt pretty secure. They felt safe. Probably provided a a point of comfort for them as well. And they might have actually felt like they were insurmountable. On the outside, however, we've got the Israelites. And God had told them that he was going to give them the city. So... In our perspective, if we look at a wall like this and we don't have the types of weaponry that we have, in, uh, that we have today in our armies, it's going to be kind of a difficult situation to overcome. 
So there was no way that they were going to be able to overcome these walls and to uh, invade the, the town city of Jericho without God's help. Another thing, if we look at archaeology, we find that the city actually predated the walls by about 500 years. So the city existed. And so at some point, somebody, or lots of bodies, decided, you know what? Love this city. Let's go ahead and build some walls around it. And so they built them. I don't know how long it took. I did some research to try to figure out how long it took. Josh, you're like a walking encyclopedia on the Bible. You may know how long it took. No, that's okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Um, but I, just, I, I tried to look for how long it took, but I couldn't find that. But what we do know is these things weren't erected overnight. They weren't erected in a week. They probably weren't erected in a year. They took a long time to build and to develop. Similarly in our lives, if we look at our hearts as kind of the city of Jericho, there are often times that we allow walls to be built around our hearts. Sometimes we even build them, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. But oftentimes we have these walls around our heart that keep us from being invaded by God, if you will. We look at them sometimes as comfort and security, when in actuality, they're keeping us from experiencing God's fullness. Our purpose over here on the wall, we exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. We are called to glorify God. One of the things that we hear Tim and Josh talking about quite frequently is the opportunity to delight in his presence. And as long as we have walls around our hearts, we're not going to be able to fully experience that. Until those walls are broken down, we're not going to be able to delight, truly delight in his presence. Until those walls were broken down, the Israelites were not going to be able to experience victory. So we want, to be, we want these walls to be broken down so that we can delight in his presence, but also so that we can experience freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from mental states sometimes, freedom from physical states at times, freedom spiritually, freedom psychologically. There's a freedom that comes with being able to delight in his presence when these walls are broken down that we cannot experience outside of them being torn down. So what I want to talk about this morning is how do we do that? How does that happen? And we don't do it. There are steps that we can take to allow God to do it, but we are not the ones that do that. It's God that has to do that. So the first principle in tearing these down is that victory requires determination. And I'm going to refer to that as daily following God. So you look at what God had asked the Israelites to do. So they get up, they'd go get in their marching bands, they'd parade around the city, and then they went home. The course is kind of interesting too, where in front you had the armed guards followed by the seven priests that were carrying the horns, then you had the Ark of the Covenant, and then you had everybody else. So go, march around, and go home. The city was about nine acres, which means it probably took them about 30 minutes to march around the city. So that's our calling. We get up as a group, we go, we march around the city, and we go home, hang out, maybe have a barbecue. I don't know what they did the rest of the day, but that was God's command. So they did that, and they followed that every day, the way that God laid it out for them.
reminded of Luke chapter uh, 9, verse 23 in this that states, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, we look at this verse and sometimes we might wonder, well, why wasn't it weekly? Why wasn't it monthly? Why wasn't it one time a year, right? We celebrate Christ's birth one time a year. Hopefully we celebrate it more frequently than that. But why is the command in the scriptures to do it on a daily basis? It's because God, because God understands us, because we have a fleshly nature, and it's a battle every day to keep perspective so that we can serve and honor him. And if we're not doing it daily, that gives an opportunity for those walls to be built up. A lot of us are going to have walls. Not everybody, but most of us have walls. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. Some of them have been developed relatively recently and are maybe pretty easy to break down. Others may have taken years to build, and they're still not broken down. God wants us to allow those walls to be broken. He wants to work in our lives so that we can experience him fully. Victory takes determination. Second, victory involves a realization of our own inadequacies and God's power. So the Israelites went out. First day, they marched around it once, went home. Second day, same thing. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, exact same thing. What happened? Nothing. They go the seventh day, and they're told to march around it seven times. So they march around it seven times. All this time, they're told by Joshua to be quiet. Don't shout. Don't yell. I don't know if that meant, that meant they didn't talk at all, but we know that they were instructed not to shout. So they went around the seventh time. They hadn't shouted yet. What happened? Nothing. Yet. Because whenever they took that final step, that the walls fell. So if we do the math on this, it took about 30 minutes for them to march around Jericho. So if they were told to march around it seven times, it's about three and a half hours, approximately. Maybe they took some breaks in there, but about three and a half hours. At this point in time, the majority of them would have probably been too tired to win a victory. And oftentimes, that's when we experience victory. When we get to the point where we give up, tried to do it my way. I've tried to work through these things. I've tried to come to the solution on my own, and I can't do it. And we finally get to the point where we move from the realm of our possibilities to the realm of God's greatness. And we move from our potential to the miracles that God can give. And when we get to that point, that's when God allows those things to start tumbling. That's when God allows those walls to start to break down. But we've got to get to the realization that I can't do this. Sure, God has gifted every one of us. He's given us gifts. He's given us abilities. He's given us strengths. But it's not in our strength that we're able to overcome these things. These walls took time to build. And they take grace to destroy. Moving a little further down, we see that as the walls came down that the army marched in and they were given some specific instructions here. 
and that was to destroy every living thing in the city. And we look at that, we think, ah, that seems kind of harsh, you know, destroy everything in the city. Why would God do that? Well, God saw his people in the wilderness. And he saw the experiences that they had in the wilderness. And he understood that whenever they were influenced by pagan gods, that they got drawn away. And God knew that if the people of Jericho were allowed to live, that they would pull God's people away again. And they would fall. Whenever the walls fall in our lives, there are things that need to be cleansed as well. In Jericho, the people needed to be removed because of the influence. We also have influences in our lives that draw us back. Satan is always putting things, placing things in our lives, in our minds, to draw us away from God and to build those walls back up. And if we're serious about breaking these walls down, when that happens, there are things that need to be removed. We see that in the example here with Jericho. And if we're not removing them, if the influences that help build the walls in the first place are not removed, they're probably going to come back and they're probably going to be stronger the second or third or fourth or fifth time around. And then we start thinking, you know, I've, I've worked through this before. Why do I keep not getting victory? And then Satan gets another stronghold, starts jabbing us saying, Mike, you're just, you just, you, you know, God doesn't love you. You've tried to work through this before, you've dealt with it, and now it just keeps coming back, so just give up. How many times have we heard that in our heads? Just give up, you're not going to win. I'm just, I'm just not going to win. And part of the reason why we don't win is because we don't eradicate the things in our lives that are having that negative influence. Whenever God tears the walls down, we need to identify where the source is and what is contributing to those walls being built in the first place. We need to take those stones and we need to remove them if we're going to have victory. So we required obedience. We are, obedience is required of us. So we need to have determination. We need to understand our own inadequacies. We need to be obedient. And then lastly, victory requires a white flag. What do you mean a white flag? Well, it's not just obedience. It's also submission. Our kids, we have eight and a four-year-old. Um, you guys probably see them running around. They'll be obedient at times because they know that there are repercussions to not being obedient. But they're not submissive to obedience to being obedient. They do it because there's a, co- a consequence, but they do it, don't do it because their hearts are in the right place. So Colin, go clean up your toys. He listens, usually, um, but he'll go and he'll clean up his toys. He might need to be reminded four or five times because he easily gets diverted onto something else, or he, he diverts himself onto something else. But nonetheless, he'll end up cleaning them up, but it's not because his, he has a really good attitude. Oh, yeah, that's the right thing to do. I really want to go clean up my toys. Um, we oftentimes hear, well, I didn't get that out. Well, m- your brother got it out. You know, so why should I clean up what my brother got out? And you see these things going back and forth as well. 
We can be obedient without being submissive. And in order for us to have victory in our lives and for these walls to be broken down, there's got to be both. There's got to be obedience and there's got to be submission. In our world, this thing right here, this white flag, represents weakness. If there are two armies that are battling and one raises the white flag, it is a recognition that we are the weaker army and we are not going to win this. In the Christian life, it's completely the opposite. Chris Tomlin sings a song called White Flag. If um, you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to go YouTube it and and listen to it when you get a chance. But when he presents this song at a concert, he talks about the dichotomy of what we have in society and what God's standard is. And God's standard is submission. And if we are not fully submitted to the sovereignty of God, those walls aren't going to completely fall. We might get part of them down, but they're not all going to fall. And so it requires complete submission, requires a white flag. The battle here is in our minds. So we looked at a few different ways that we can not just identify the walls, but help them to break down. But how do we truly submit? How do we truly win this victory? How do we truly win this battle? I'm going to read uh, a couple of verses, and then we'll pull another one up on the screen. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So how are we doing with this? When I say that, I'm speaking to myself as well. How am I doing with this in terms of what I'm placing in my mind? Let's break each one of these down a little bit. I will give you a, a kind of a, uh, a definition for each one of these. And as we go through this, I'd just like us to ask ourselves, how am I doing with this? So whatever is true. True refers to that which, conf- uh, that which conforms to reality. Reality is God's reality. We live in a society where truth is all relative. If I believe it, that makes it true. If I want to believe it, that makes it true. And if I don't believe it, then it's not true. That is completely opposite of the truth, of the absolute truth that God gives us. There was a bumper sticker that uh, I remember seeing whenever I was a kid that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's pretty cool, you know, somebody's out there, they're talking about uh, God and truth. But as we think through that, that's not true at all. Um, Heard Sherry Pazikas actually reference this as well. God said it. It makes absolutely no difference whether I believe it or not. That settles it. God's truth is not relative. God's truth is absolute. And I've got to first rest on that. 
if I don't have the foundation of believing and understanding that God's truth is absolute, I'm never going to be able to tear these walls down. Whatever is noble, which means worthy of respect or entitled to honor, that which inspires reverence and awe. Whatever is right, that which conforms to the perfect standards of God's righteousness. Not our righteousness. We can't live up to God's righteousness. But that is the standard by which we're supposed to fill our minds. Whatever is pure, that which is free from defilement, unstained, and will not contaminate. This word implies both moral and inward purity. So it's not just actions. It's inward purity as well. That which is lovely refers to conduct that is pleasing in its motive and its actions. You know, there are times that we'll do things that on the outside look really nice and maybe are even the right thing to do, but are we doing it for the right motives? God says fill our minds, tells us to fill our minds with things that are pure in action and pure in motive as well. That which is admirable, that which is well spoken of, praiseworthy, laudable, highly regarded, something or someone that deservedly enjoys a good reputation. So as we look through these, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, how are we doing in that area? If we're not filling our minds with these things, it's no wonder these walls don't get broken down. These walls are, a lot, in a lot of cases, are very, very strong. They have a strong foundation. In some cases, they go back years. And there's a lot involved with them. And if we're not filling our minds with these things and following the admonition of this verse, these verses, it's very likely that the walls are not going to fall. The end of the ver- or verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, so this is Paul speaking, said or seen in me, put these things into practice. Some of us like practice, some of us don't. Those of us that have been involved with sports or um, maybe play an instrument, we're blessed by the gifts, that, again, that God has given us and, and those that lead our ministry of music here. That takes practice. They don't just get up there and play the violin or play the piano. Or Those things take years of practice. Ethan has taken piano lessons, and I can't say that that's his most favorite thing to do every day. Uh, in fact, it's not an everyday thing because it's not the most enjoyable thing. It takes work. There are times where these things are not going to be easy, Paul tells us to practice these things. Another translation says to dwell on these things. Dwell, my, what I think about when I see dwell is sitting in a, uh, on a chair and it's just continually pervasive of our minds. But are we filling our minds with these things? So we looked at each one of the, or when we look at each one of these descriptors, every one of them is embodied in one person, in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to have victory, if the walls are going to break, we've got to see the embodiment of Christ in our lives. And then the last part of the verse, and this um, particular passage, and the God of peace will be with you. We talked a little bit earlier around all the difficulties that are going on within our family, outside of our family here. And this verse at the end I see Christ saying, peace, be still. The God of peace will be with you. So all the turmoil, all the restlessness, all those things that I struggle with on a daily basis, peace, be still. 
God can grant those things. Christ can give us those things. But the walls have got to be torn down first. So I'd like to share with you a, a couple of things here around some victories that we've seen in our lives and, and also some, some challenges confession-wise of some things that we've gone through. Josh had mentioned you know, in, in discussing this uh, a few months ago, there have been some walls in my life personally, Christine's life, and then as a family that we've been able to experience. Um, and what that has brought to us, and, and specifically to our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Whenever we moved up here about five years ago, we searched around for a church and spent, I don't know, six months or so looking around, and uh, we ended up coming here. The demands of a new role within, I was with the same company then, um, didn't change companies, just went into a different role, and there's always a learning curve. And so there at the beginning, there was a learning curve, and I was working a lot. And then about two years into it, the the learning curve was better, but the demands of my job got uh, extremely high. And things were changed to where a 40-hour work week was, like, really short. And some of the weeks were almost double that, and, like, week after week after week. And so, you know, I'd talk to people about this, and I'd share with them, you know, I just, I'm working a lot. God's called me. i got to take care of my family, and I see that. Um, but you know, I'm, I feel like maybe I'm deficient in some other areas. I, you know, I pray on the way to work and uh, that type of thing and try to seek God there, but I honestly wasn't spending a lot of time in the Word, certainly was not spending time leading my family as, uh, as the father or, or as the husband. And I'd have people, Christian, friends, that would say, ah, you know, Mike, God understands. God understands. And I believe that. And I do believe that God understood, but he was still working. There was a reason why he was prodding me. And there came a, a point where those walls developed. Yeah, God understands. I'm taking care of my family from a physical standpoint. I'm you know, working to help meet the needs, and that's what God has called me to do. All the time neglecting the spiritual component, mostly of my wife. Still read and pray with the boys before they went to bed, but mostly of my wife. And series of events took place where God basically said, Mike, you're justifying what you're doing and you're not the spiritual leader of your family the way that I created you to be. And justification and rationalization had become walls around my heart. And I had gotten to the point where I was okay with that. So even whenever work started to calm down a little bit, I was in such a uh, uh, habit of come home, put the kids to bed, talk to Christine for about three minutes, and then get on the computer, that when I didn't have to get on the computer anymore, I would, oh, you know what, I need some downtime. I need to go, ah, you know, I'd go watch a football game. You know, I'd go watch a college football game or go watch something on TV to decompress. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I was negatively filling my mind with. It was just something that I felt that I needed. When in reality, taking that time was not driving a wedge between my wife and I, but it certainly was not taking us down the same course. And when I realized that this was a wall that I had allowed to build up and it was justification that Satan, honestly, he, he loved having that there. 
because that was neglecting the needs of my family, and it was keeping us from being able to move forward in terms of what God's calling was for us in our lives. So I share that with you. It's Father's Day. So fathers, how are we doing? How are we doing in leading our families spiritually? Not just provision, but how are we doing in leading our families spiritually? Encouragement, if we're not where we want to be, is to identify what those next steps can be or should be. But if there's a wall of justification or rationalization there, like I had built up personally, I encourage you to allow God to break those down. So what other types <clears throat> of walls often build up? What other strongholds might there be? I'm going to run through a little bit, relatively short list of things, but just chat about these a little. Uh, if anything strikes you, I'd encourage you to be open to um, what this might mean. So I'm going to start off with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're beginning of wisdom, actually. And there is a righteous fear of God, but at the same time, perfect love casts out fear. The enemy knows that if he can have us be wrapped up in fear, that we're never going to be useful for God because that is all-encompassing. Fear can be a stronghold. What about pride? When the Israelites went from the realm of their possibilities to the realm of God's miracles, that's whenever they experience victory. If I've got pride in my life, I'm never going to be able to make that step. Satan loves pride. What about bitterness, lack of forgiveness? Whether that is with someone or something or a circumstance or even with God. I spent six years... uh, overseas teaching at a a Christian school in in South Korea. And one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason, why missionaries leave the mission field is because of lack of ability to get along with other missionaries. That seems kind of counterproductive, doesn't it? But that truly is one of the primary reasons why people leave the mission field. And there was a circumstance, our church was going through um, some difficulties, and they not because of the difficulties, but we had a professional baseball player from, I think it was the Atlanta Braves actually, came and shared at the church. And there was such actually incredible discernment that this gentleman was able to, uh, to identify. And he was able to lead us in a time of reconciliation where there had been some, um, I don't know necessarily bitterness, but there was certainly some lack of forgiveness and lack of understanding being expressed by various people in the congregation. And so he allowed, God allowed him to identify that and to help us work through that. And once that was dealt with, then it was a completely different atmosphere whenever we came into to the church. We had uh, a lot of international communities there. We also had a number of missionaries there as well. But there are times where Satan gets us so caught up in bitterness or lack of forgiveness that it eliminates the possibility for us to be able to be used by God. Anything from your past that creates a constant struggle almost on a daily basis, something that stands larger than God in our lives, hurt, pain. All of us have experienced some degree of hurt or pain. Some of us experienced it in a much deeper realm than what others of us have. And there are times that we're convinced that nobody's going to understand 
that nobody's, nobody can empathize with me. And we might not be able to do that physically and humanly speaking, but that doesn't mean that God can't. Got an email <clears throat> several weeks ago. That was one of those blast emails from somebody I'm on their distribution list, I guess. And, but it was a series of quotes from a 90-year-old woman around what she had learned during life. And one of those quotes said, if we all threw our problems into a pile and saw everyone else's, we'd pick ours back up. We don't have to necessarily understand everything that we're going through or understand everything that everybody else is going through. We're all going to have pain. But if we allow that pain to keep us from pursuing God and allow that pain to build walls around our hearts, we're never going to see the victory. What about control? Christine tells me that I have control issues whenever we get on 422. And, you know, there are times we'll be in the passing lane, passing a car as you should in the passing lane, and somebody gets right up on your bumper. Well, for the sake of the safety of everybody else on the road, you need to help this person slow down a little bit. So, take your gas off of the accelerator, box them in. And that helps them, right? Helps create more road rage is usually what it does. Nonetheless, Christine helps me with that. that it, I hope it's not a strong, it only happens on 422, so I don't think it's a stronghold. But uh, nonetheless, she helps me with that. And she reminds me, you don't know where those people are going. You don't know why they're going so fast. We or I, not we, I assume that they don't need to be going that fast. I don't know their circumstances. I don't know where they're trying to get. They may be trying to get to the hospital because somebody was just hospitalized on the situation. Shall we say, no, they're not, right? <laughs> so the overwhelming majority, that is not the case, but there may be some that that is the case. I don't understand their circumstances. We don't have to understand each other's circumstances. God does. And he gives us the peace that we can experience through those things. He understands the pain. He understands the hurt. And he can give us the power to have healing. What about our identities? Where's our identity? Tim, a couple of weeks ago, talked about our identity. And if our identity is placed in anything other than Christ, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Somebody asks you... Um, our, our typical response to who we are is more what we do as opposed to what God has created us to be. And so my encouragement to us this morning is within that is to find our identity in Christ and only in Him. And then all these other things start to pale. So I'd like to close us out this morning sharing with you a victory that Christine experienced in her life and has significant has had significant impact on us uh, as well spiritually and also in terms of um, our unity as husband and wife. So, and I I'm, I'll preface this with the intent with this discussion is to bring glory to God and the victory that He has given, not to bring glory to Christine. There were some things in there, the principles that we just walked through. She applied those things. But it's not because of what she did. It's because of what God allowed to happen in her life. So I just want to preface this with that, um, that point. So 
Christine grew up in South Korea. She was a, what they call a third culture kid. So her parents were from two different cultures. Her mom was Korean. Her dad was uh, U.S. military. And the perspective of the society, generally speaking, of children that have that heritage was not real favorable. So she grew up in an environment where she was viewed very negatively and probably told to a pretty great degree whether it was with nonverbal expressions or verbal expressions, um, how meaningful or meaningless she might have been. So one of her parents was somewhat overbearing. A lot of us have experiences where that may have been the case. Um, her dad, she never saw her dad physically until she was eight years old. So her dad went to various military bases across the world, always provided for them in terms of finances, but was physically, that's what they chose to do as a family. Physically was not, not really there very much. So she grew up in an environment where she had those experiences. One of the most memorable things and most meaningful things for her as a child growing up was going to her grandparents' place. So it was out in the country. And you know, we, think of our, we think of our grandparents and maybe some experiences that we had growing up. And we wake up to the smells of apple pie or something of that nature. Similar experiences for Christine. It wasn't apple pie that she woke up to. It was more fermented cabbage. But nonetheless, it was, it was experiences that that meant something to her. And so she also saw things that she considered normal for a family that weren't part of her day-to-day life, things such as her grandmother cooking for them, things such as going with her grandfather to go collect wood, come in and stoke the fire to keep it warm in the house, seeing her grandfather work in the field to help provide. Those were all things that were normal, or should be normal, but weren't normal. The biggest thing that she experienced, and she didn't understand this until later in life, was how much she was loved, accepted, and nurtured by her grandmother. Another thing that she didn't really get very frequently outside of that. And this love and acceptance wasn't so much verbally stated. It wasn't so much um, physically enacted. It was just a nurturing and an acceptance that she knew that her grandmother loved her. And so we move forward into her teen years, and she accepted Christ whenever she was a teenager. But these things that had built up during her childhood, and I'm going to call them lies because they were lies of the enemy around the importance and um, acceptance of who she was, continued to be walls. Fast forward even further into adulthood. So now she's married. She has kids through the course of um, our first several years together. Uh, We've actually been married 20 years this summer. um, So we thank God for that. But in the course of these times, whether it was a disagreement that we had or a situation where... um, Maybe she didn't feel accepted or, or nurtured in other circumstances. But anytime she needed that nurturing, she would retreat. And she would retreat to the solitude of finding her grandmother. And 
and she would visualize her grandmother just rubbing her fingers through her hair. And that became such a downward spiral, not because her grandmother was bad. Her grandmother wasn't bad. Her grandmother was a strong component of her life. But it became a downward spiral to where she realized this, this is, I can't do this. I, 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 these have got to be broken. And she reached out and prayed very earnestly. Um, she had gotten to the point where I've tried to deal with these things, this hurt, this pain, this lack of acceptance that I've been taught as a kid and get through these things, and I haven't been successful at that. And so she reached out earnestly. I don't know what the time period was, but it wasn't real long after that. She went to visit a friend that uh, was visiting from Korea. She drove to D.C. and visited with this friend. And God used that friend to communicate to her. That was the answer, the first answer to the prayer that she had prayed specifically about. And that was the beginning of a journey that took over a year. When we looked at those walls that were up there on the screen, talking 20-some feet high, these were walls for her that had been developed and had been deep-rooted over decades. And it wasn't something that was easy to break down. And so as she sought God, as she spent time, as she sought him in prayer, as she spent time um, in his word, in reading, and also seeking support and encouragement from the body, it's another thing that we have been very, very grateful to experience here is the role that the body within this local body has played in our lives. Um, a lot of you have been encouragements to us in a number of different ways, and there are several, speak, several people that are seated in chairs right now that played a significant role in the freedom that she was able to experience and what that has brought to us. And without God placing those people in our, in our lives and in her life specifically, I don't know that these things get broken down. The importance of the body and the role that the body plays, we cannot um, negate how that has an impact. So the course uh, of, of a year, and it came to the point where there was a realization that what had happened in her life and the lies and the strongholds that were around her heart had actually developed into her grandmother becoming an idol in her life because she was looking to her grandmother and in her mind's eye, seeing her grandmother being her consolation, being her support, being her nurturer. Whenever that was, a, she had placed her grandmother in a spot of preeminence that only God should be in. And once she identified that, then pieces started to come off. So the wall was broken down. The layers started to be eliminated. And there were layers. It wasn't just, okay, I pray one time and it's done and we're ready to move forward. There were layers there that continued to open up as she dug a little bit deeper. Not only this, but she identified on her own. I don't think anybody told her this. She identified on her own, there are things that I know are going to push me back there that are going to have an influence on me negatively and bring these things back, and I'm getting rid of them. I remember walking in from work one day. She had a bag full of stuff. She said, this is all going in the trash. 
And they weren't bad things in and of themselves, but they were things that she was afraid would pull her back into the snares of the strongholds. And so she got rid of them. There were strongholds that were components of her life that started from lies. And that developed into an idol within her grandmother as a coping mechanism for these strongholds. Her grandmother wasn't bad, wasn't a bad person. Idols aren't always bad things. It's just whenever we place them in a spot of preeminence above Christ. If I'm going to anything else for my nurturing and for my support than to God, you might want to consider that that's not the place that it should be in. There's a difference between an idol and a stronghold as well. An idol is a thing, potentially an object or a person. A stronghold is a mental perspective, a belief potentially, and they're not the same thing. So where are we this morning? God provided victory in our lives, specifically in, in, in us as a couple and, and in Christine's life. Something was layered thick, decades long. We may have things that go back to our childhood as well that God wants to have a place of preeminence in. And we struggle to allow those walls to be torn down. We may have other things that just came up yesterday and aren't very deeply rooted, but God also wants to break those down. The last verse that I want to reference, Jeremiah 29, 13. And wait. So the verse states, uh, there we go, Jeremiah 20, 13. You will, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the focus here is seeking the Lord, earnestly, wholeheartedly seeking him. He promises us that if we seek him, we will find him, and the God of peace will be with us. There are circumstances and situations where God wants to reign peace in our lives, but we've got to go from the realm of our potential to the realm of his miracles. So as Michael and Shelby come and share with us a song, we're going to sing Freedom Reigns in This Place. And as they sing, what I would ask that we do is just look introspectively and identify, are there places in our lives where we have walls built up? Are there places in our lives where we're not experiencing freedom? And if there are, I would encourage us to identify what those are and raise the white flag for God to give us victory.